something or someone will have first place in your heart. But when you find your identity in the one who created you, it'll change your whole perspective. Show it, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> hey, how many of y'all were at, if you were at Overcomer, the screening that we did as a church on Tuesday, stand up. I was going to say y'all are, y'all are telling stories. Here's what I would say. We had a, over 100 people there, bought out that theater. Stay standing. Stay standing for just a second. Y'all are all going to dance down the aisle. No. Um, we bought out that theater. We had over 100 people there. It was an incredible, gospel-centric, Jesus-focused movie, more than any other movie at least I've ever seen in my entire life. And I want to ask you all a question. If you're planning on taking some, going to see it again and taking a friend or a family member who has not seen it, raise your hand. That's the point. That, <clears throat> that, that movie, there will be thousands. I'm not a prophet, but there will be thousands. Y'all can sit down. There'll be thousands of people that are going to come to know the Lord because of the ministries, the ministry uh, that, that Stephen and Alex and Shannon Kendrick have because of that movie. Really and truly, that ought to get us fired up. And so we're so um, thankful and feel privileged to have played a very uh, integral kind of role in the production of that movie. Our, us, our church family, we saw in the credits Church on the Trail. It was super cool seeing that in there because we really played a, a role in the making of that movie, and so it, it is awesome. So I encourage you to go see it, number one. No, and just a couple of things before we jump into today's message. Um, they mentioned in the, in the welcome that, uh, that, that just these calendars are out there. We're changing around a little bit of the way we do the worship guide and so forth. So you noticed on that black wall a big calendar for August, a big calendar for September. There's a lot of stuff that's going on in our church family. And so that, those are out there on, the, um, on that big black wall. And then at the connections desk, you'll find these. And these are kind of done so that you can take, grab one, take it home, stick it on your, uh, on your refrigerator. And then the worship guide is changing a little bit. So all you got when you came in, matter of fact, if you don't have one of these, we want raise your hand because we want to get one in your, in your hands. Um, and there's some over here too, Zach. This is just message notes, really. That's, that's kind of the change that we made. Uh, I want to encourage us, too, to, to jump into this yard sale that we're having next weekend. We still need help on Friday night putting stuff together, pricing stuff and all of that jazz. And, and we want you all really to buy into bringing, you know, anything, you know, the, the things in your house, not a bunch of junk, but things that are in decent condition 
to, that's probably, probably could have thought of a better way to say that, but to bring stuff Friday night to help and then to be there um, Saturday morning. So, again, my name's Ed Griffin-Hagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff, and I, want to, I do want to welcome you here. If this is your first time here, I hope that you raised your hand a little while ago and got, if this is your first time and got one of the little welcome kits put in your hand by Elliot and Katie Long, or Katie Long. Um, and if you're watching online, you know, we got people watching online all the time every Sunday. So we want to welcome everybody here. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and thankful and privileged that you, uh, that God has kind of pushed you here for whatever reason this morning. So look, we're in week two of a series called Identity Crisis. You saw that up on the screen. And we're, we're walking through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, to the Ephesians. And that letter... Uh, really brings to light who we are in Christ. That, uh, that phrase is throughout Paul's writing, but particularly it's throughout Ephesians. And this is this idea that, uh, that our identity is tied to whatever or whoever we give our heart to. You heard him say that in that little video. And so Paul begins in chapter 1, the first few verses, setting up who we truly are in Christ. Um, and he sets that up with this thought at the very beginning that we are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And then, and not that we have to fully understand, because I don't think we will, fully understand how that works, how that choosing works. And that was a difficult, for me at least, it was, that was a little difficult message last week. But we don't have to understand exactly how that choosing happens but I think he wants us to buy in what it means in our life. That's kind of the way we ended last week's message. How, how does that play out in our walk every day? And it, and it ought to play out that, that it gives us assurance and it gives us hope and it drives us to be humble and we buy into the power that God will provide for us and that it would give us a boldness to share the gospel. And that's all in that first 14 verses of chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, the letter, letter to Ephesus. Today we're going to dive into prayer uh, It is in the last half of chapter 1. It's Paul's prayer, and it's a prayer for strength and, and thanksgiving. Last week we also we talked about the difficulty in understanding that whole chosen predestined thing. And I think Paul must have thought or felt or understood that the original hearers of that letter, the Asians, the, the, the folks in Asia Minor, would maybe struggle with that too because it's almost like he presses a pause a little bit in verse 15 and says and prays for them. And it's almost like he says, look guys, I know the, the complexity and the truth that I just saw at the beginning of this chapter um, and says, I know that it's kind of hard for him, so let, I want to pray for y'all. And that prayer, starting in verse 15, is a prayer for enlightenment. It's a prayer for illumination. Y'all know the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity that illuminates the text of the Bible for us and begins at least to allow us to understand a little more. So he prays that, uh, that, that the Lord would give them understanding. And I think he, he prays that the Lord would give them understanding in three areas of, uh, of their life. Number one is this, that we, they and we, would understand Number one, the hope of our calling, the hope of our calling. And then, and then number two, that we would come to understand, they would come to understand 
the, uh, that they are and that we and you are God's prized possessions, His glorious inheritance. And then last is that we would come to understand the greatness of God's power that's towards us and available to us. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And so he starts this off for reason. What reason? When, he's, when Paul says something like that, for this reason, well, what reason? It's the reason he just gave them. So for this reason, and it pushes us back a little bit into the preceding verses that we ended with last week, and I think particularly verses 13 and 14, it's almost like he says, because you heard the gospel and believed, because you heard the gospel and believed, because of this, you were sealed, if you remember this from verse 14, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So because of this, Paul says in verse 15, because I, Paul, because I've heard of your faith in Christ and your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, because of that, I'm so thankful for all of you. And I'm constantly praying for you. That's what Paul says here in verse 15. He says, for, for Paul, faith and love, they almost always go together. A guy named John Chrysostom, who was a church father in the late 4th century, he called faith and love a wonderful pair of twins. Faith precedes love. Faith results in love. Love is the evidence of authentic, genuine faith. John 13 says by this, in verse 35, says by this all people will know you are my disciples. If you have what? Love for one another. So authentic faith, and this is, a, I think, a fill in the blank in your worship, God. Authentic faith must always, always, always result in love. Authentic, genuine, sure enough faith always results in love. Love is the characteristic mark of a Christian. It is. And Paul is encouraging them. He's encouraging the believers in Ephesus because of their faith and because of the subsequent love that comes out of that faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, talking about faith, says this. It gives us kind of, a, kind of a biblical definition. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. It's a belief in the truth. It's a belief in the truth. Trust is a major component of faith. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, the, the, the root is the same word. Trust. So trust is a major component of faith. Well, what's the faith in here? What's the faith in here? Paul says the faith here is in the Lord Jesus. Okay, so back up again to verse 13. It says, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him. You could hear it and, and you could know that it was the gospel and not believe it. But he says to them, you heard it. What was it? It was the gospel of your salvation and you believed in Him. And so this belief, this trust, if it's genuine, will always result in love. And it may result in love this big for some people right off the bat. And it may result in love this big for other people. But if you have true, genuine, authentic faith, it must result 
in love. And agape is the word that's used there. And we talked about agape two or three weeks ago. It's the word that's used for love. And it, uh, agape love is a caring love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that, that counts no sacrifice too big for the one being loved. And Paul is thankful for the way the Ephesian believers sacrificially love each other. So after Paul gives these guys and gives us some super deep truths in that first 14 verses, he prays for us to have sight, to have, to have sight, to have enlightenment. He asked the Lord that the Lord would give them, in verse 17 and 18, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, and that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Spiritual sight. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Spiritual sight. That the Holy Spirit would illuminate these truths for them. Sight, y'all, is one of those things that, that you don't want to lose. Your life would be drastically different without sight. When I was 18 years old, very briefly, thank the, the Lord, very briefly, I had a 1974 MG Midget. The biggest piece of junk vehicle probably that has ever been made on the planet, and it was about the size of that keyboard. I mean, tiniest. That car was so small when I was in college, I went out for something. I don't even know. Probably, I guess I probably went to class. When I got back from class, my friends had picked it up off the ground and wedged it off the ground between two trees. So they're a tiny little vehicle but anyway I was rebuilding the brake master cylinder on this uh, on this vehicle and I am not a mechanic but I I was going to say I looked on YouTube but there weren't no YouTube 30 years ago I got went and bought a Chilton's manual some of you probably don't even know what a Chilton's manual is but it told me how to do this and a master brake cylinder it's got there's like a piston in there and it's got a bunch of little rings in there and you got to soak all that stuff in brake fluid and so I had it all soaked in brake fluid and I was dropping a lot of these little o-rings and and washers and stuff into that brake fluid and a bunch of brake fluid splashed up in my eyes. Not a good thing to happen. It hurt so bad and I couldn't see a thing. Maybe just like um, like shades of dark and light was really all I could see. It freaked me out and it was crazy scary. My point is this. Sight is something that you don't want to, to be without because there's so much in life that you're going to miss out on. Spiritual sight is something that you don't want to do without either because there's so much in life that you will miss out on. Bring a little bit of last week back. Paul's saying that he wants you not just to consent to the fact that God loves you and has always been working on your behalf, but for you to really feel it, to really see it, to really taste it. Psalm 34, verse 8 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Some translations say sweet. Taste and see that the Lord is sweet. Listen, it is one thing for me to tell you and for you to know and for you to maybe even have mental um, assent, intellectual knowledge, awareness of how incredible and sweet Susan's brownies are. I could tell you that. And, and uh, in the interest of transparency and honesty, how many of you, and you've got to have children for this to be true, have had a child, probably about the third grade, that on a Tuesday night, about 10 o'clock, they say to you, 
Mama or Daddy, I've got a project due tomorrow morning. I've got to have a volcano made by tomorrow morning for class. Any of that ever happen? Well, I did that to Susan last night. At midnight, I said, I need some of your brownies for illustration tomorrow. So I ain't got no merit brownies for y'all today because that was at midnight last night. But here's the deal. She makes them, they're homemade brownies. She takes one of those 9 by 13 glass, I call it a dish. What's it called? Pyrex casserole dishy thing. She pours this homemade batter, rich, thick, chocolatey batter, one layer. And then she takes either, and you may have seen this, you can go and get them at Walmart. It's a peanut butter, uh, a Reese peanut butter cup candy bar. They're about that big. They're like five bucks a pop. Or a Butterfinger bar that big. Or a, or a what's the other one? Heath bar. And then she, so she puts a layer of that on there. And then pours that batter, that creamy, thick, chocolatey batter across the top of that. Y'all, they are the sweetest, most awesomest brownies that you could ever, they are so incredible. And my plan was to have a dish of them right there for y'all to eat, but I blew that with the volcano. But it's one thing for you to have knowledge of that, to even maybe to understand what I just said, but it is a totally other thing to have the incredible sweetness of that just burst forth in your mouth. And Paul's prayer here is that you would taste just how much God loves you, just how much He cherishes you and how His closeness to you and how He is working all of that in you. Because, y'all, that's what, that's what changes lives. That's what makes changes inside of you. Seeing God's majesty with the eyes of your heart and feeling that love, how it changes your heart. It creates a love, a love in you for Him. A love that can help you push away the craving for sin. A, a love that can help you push away the temptations that, that are in your life. A love that can help, uh, uh, help you to allow that love to overflow and pour into somebody else's life. Look, God is not out there looking for a bunch of religious rule-following robots. He's not. He's calling out a people for His own. He's always done that. Calling out a people to love and to worship Him. And sometimes that maybe that can be a problem because it's not that we don't know the stuff. It's not. It's not that we may not understand the truths about His love. But it's that we've never tasted them ourselves. These truths about His love have never just burst out in our hearts. And for Paul, for Paul of all people, he can't even begin to start talking about the love of God without just busting out in worship and praise. There are several places Paul gets carried away. Paul gets excited. And when you read the way he wrote, he wrote excited. These first 23 verses in Ephesians chapter 1, I think, are two sentences. One sentence goes, one long Greek sentence goes to verse 14, and another one goes to the end. He gets excited, but his excitement is in Christ. His excitement is that, he, it's almost like he's saying, don't you people realize how big and how awesome how in, and how incredible and glorious and wondrous God and his plans for you are. You know, there was even a time when Paul was in Rome in prison, and I think I shared this a few months ago, that he's in prison in Rome in the, 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 I think they're called the Praetorium, Praetoriate Guard in Rome 
had the honor and the privilege of being shackled to Paul the whole time that he's in prison. They did shifts, 12-hour shifts. Could you imagine being shackled to Paul in his incessant mouth for 12 hours at a time? But God ordained that because who led the charge of the gospel spreading in Rome? The baddest, super baddest, most big-time soldiers who had been shackled to Paul for 12-hour shifts every day. That's the way God does stuff. And so the point of uh, this little thing is, is not, not just to avoid sin. It's not just to believe in the right things, but to know God and to love Him. And our passion for Him begins with spiritual sight, seeing just how much that He loves us. So this is what Paul prayed, that they would see God with their hearts and be overwhelmed with a sense of awe and a sense of worship, just being in His presence. And this is what I pray for for you all the time. Over the course of the last 15 months or so, I've undergone a little bit of a change as a pastor. I love to teach. I love to teach. I think I'm decent. It's one of the few things that I'm decent at. I think I'm decent at teaching. But, but my goal every Sunday when we're sitting in here, it can't be for you to leave here with a set of knowledge, some set of facts and figures and intellectual Knowledge. My goal every week is for you to walk out those doors madly in love with God. Madly in love with Him. A little more than you were when you walked in. For some of you, a lot more than when you walked in. That's, that is really is my goal to be for you to leave out of here and for me to leave out of here totally in awe of Him. To want to see Him and to know Him better every single day of our lives. To taste just how sweet He really is. And I don't want you to walk out of here anymore stressing about what you need to go out and do for God. But I want you to leave here blown away by what He's already done for you. And you, you often don't even realize that. Because, but when you do, when you do, you will go out into the world and you will do what you need to do because that sight that the Holy Spirit gives you will change you. Suddenly in the, in the light of that sight, all the things that have stolen your heart, and I don't know what they are, false idols, anything that jumps between you and the Lord, money, children sometimes, spouses sometimes, your job, I, whatever it is, the way that you were brought up, you had, a, you had parents that were nasty and ugly and mean, you had a dad who abused you, whatever it is that has stolen your heart, and it can be false saviors. For sure it can be. They suddenly can lose when, you, when your eyes are opened. Those things can lose their grip on you. They will lose their grip on you. I know now, personally, I know that the only thing that can break the grip, the power and the grip that sin and temptation has on our lives is a more intense love for Jesus. So you need to see, y'all, with the with the eyes of your heart, Jesus. You open up your heart and you see Him. Only a greater love for Him can keep you from just giving yourself over to sin. And so when Paul says in verse 18 that he's praying for us to have our eyes open, what is it that he wants us to see? I think there's three things that he wants us to see. A little more clearly. 
Because right now you may be looking through the window and it's a little fogged. And so he wants to clear that up, I think, about three things. Number one is this, hope. The hope in verse 18 says, the hope to which he has called you. It's that word hope. What is, what is hope? Hope is usually defined in our world. Hope is defined as, as a desire that you have that you just may not be sure will come to pass. Like college football, praise the Lord, is around the corner. Around the corner, and I was watching ESPN this week. The power rankings were on ESPN, and here's they, here they are, top three power rankings. Clemson, Bama, Georgia. So I hope that Georgia is playing in January. I hope they are. I do know this. I do know this. They got a couple of future first-round draft picks at quarterback, one at running back, and I think they got the best offensive line in the country. So I hope they're going to be there in January, but I don't know. We just don't know if they will or not. Biblical hope, though, is different. Biblical hope is certain. Biblical hope is for sure. Write this down. I don't think it's in the worship guide, but it'll be on the screen. Biblical hope, yeah. Biblical hope is a life-shaping certainty that hasn't happened yet. But you know that you know that you know that you know it's going to happen. Why can you be sure that it's going to happen, whatever it is? The answer is because biblical hope is built on the promises of God, and He ain't a liar. He's a promise keeper. And so you know for sure. And you know the ancient world that this was written into, most of Paul's letters were written into, most of the Gospels were written into, was a reasonably hopeless world. And there was a saying at the time that went something like this, not to be born at all, this is by far the best fortune. The second best is to die as soon as you're born. But all of that changed, y'all. All of it changed for Christians. Because the coming of Christ and His resurrection was a game changer. It was a game changer. He came, He died, He rose again. That was a game changer. It brought about wonder and glory and hope and all of these things, the future for them could be, now be faced with uh, anticipation. E eager, better said, eager anticipation. Rather than fear and dread and, more, and mourning and, and misery. It could be faced with hope. Because what God has determined to give you and what He is making me and you into, it's a done deal. Paul says, that God set His love on me and you from all eternity. And He will never turn His back. He says, I pray, Paul. He says, I pray that you might be able to see the certainty of that and the value in that. So what's the value in that? How about the fact that knowing the hope to which we are called allows us to begin to overcome sin and temptation. And not just to overcome sin and temptation, but to... To, to weather the storms of life, to, to endure the pain that can come in life. Mercy Me. Y'all know Mercy Me, the band. Mercy Me has a song called, the name of it is We Win. It, and it wasn't some crazy number one chart hit song, but it's called We Win. And I, this is when I wish so bad I could sing because I would sing the chorus for you, but I'm not. I'm gonna, I want you to listen, though, to the words of the chorus of the song We Win. It says, this goes out to anyone down for the count. It's not over. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Just remember who you belong to. Let me remind you how this ends. 
we win, whoa, 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 we win. There's, I should have got you to sing that little part. Or I guess I could have skipped that little part. There's hope in that, y'all. There's crazy, unimaginable, real hope. We win. The message of that is we win. Whatever happens in this life that we're all walking through, good, bad, indifferent. When it's all said and done at the end of the day, we win. That is the message in that. So number one is the hope that we find in God's calling. The hope that we find in His calling. And number two is this. It is He wants us to to understand Paul in his prayer, to understand his inheritance. Look at the end of verse 18. He wants us to understand what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And this may throw you. It sounds a little bit like, uh, like religious double talk. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? First of all, it's not a question. Paul's saying, I want you to understand what these are. Paul says, I'm praying in this passage. I'm praying for your eyes to be open so you may know the hope and that you may know the riches of his inheritance. So he's talking about an inheritance. Well, what's an inheritance? It's something of value that you get when somebody dies. Whose inheritance is he talking about? There's two schools of thought here from people way smarter than me. Are we God's inheritance or is he our, and he and everything that he brings to to the table, our inheritance? And I think and believe in the context of this passage and in the context of this chapter and in the context of the whole book of Ephesians that we are his inheritance. And Paul's per- this is the Paul Paul's purpose of this letter is is our identity and who we are and who God says that we are. Look at just look at Deuteronomy 32. It says the Lord's portion is his people. He's been calling people out for a long, long time. To be, and Deuteronomy 32 says his portion is his people. So let me try to make this make sense in, in, in its appropriate context. Yeah, I'm saying that God has an inheritance. What is his inheritance? It is the saints. This text says it's the saints. Well, who are the saints? The saints are, are all those that God has chosen. If you're a believer, you're a saint. If you're a believer, you are his inheritance. You are God's inheritance. Paul says that I'm praying for y'all so that you may know that you are God's greatest treasure. His most prized possession. But a major component or theme of Ephesians is the worth and the value that God places on you. Think about how staggering that is. Last week we said, and we've said it multiple different times probably, that the reason he chose us was not because of anything that we did, not that we brought anything to the table, not for anything that we deserve it, but because what? Because he loved us. Remember verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1. He adopted us because he loved us. He chose us to be part of his family because he loves us. Ever since the fall in the garden, he's been calling out a people in his name. He's been calling out a people to be, Deuteronomy says, his portion as an expression of his great love, as a trophy of grace. Y'all think about the guy, think about the guy that gets the most valuable player trophy on a high school baseball team. And I did not get 
the most valuable player trophy on my high school baseball team. You know what, though? 1983, Hardaway Hawks uh, baseball team, I got the Coaches Award. The, the Coaches Award, and which was really like, I'll use that as an example. That's like the Charlie Hustle, never quit, never say die. I was the, the one that would hit an easy ground ball to first base and run it out. So, I mean, it's the guy that hustled and never quit and that kind of that kind of thing. Well, how did that make me feel? How did it make me feel? Tony Dimitri was our, our coach in high school. And, and it made me feel like I mattered to him, that he totally appreciated and loved me for, for who I was. It was almost like I was a trophy for him that displayed everything that he brought to the table, everything that he taught us on and off the field, work ethic, you know, never quit, all of that stuff. And if we view this through that lens, we can see that Paul desperately wants us to know how special and how dear we all are to God. He has taken us to be his everlasting portion. And he's made trophies of us of grace that display his grace and his power. I am God's inheritance. You're a believer. You are God's inheritance. God considered me so precious, so precious to him that Jesus gave up everything for me. Willingly went to the cross. Willingly died to save me. And so Paul is praying for me and you to see that, that we would feel it, that we would be overwhelmed with that, that we would taste that and his commitment to us. F.F. F. Bruce, who's a, a theologian, a reasonably current theologian, super good writer, he said this about this subject. He said, we can scarcely realize what it must mean to God to see his purpose complete, to see creatures of his hands, sinners redeemed by his grace, reflecting his own glory. We'll get to this in a few weeks, but I want to take a glimpse at Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul's talking about the Lord's love again for us. And he says this in verse 18. He says, I pray that you, in verse 18, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's saying... This love is nuts. This love is crazy. It is virtually unfathomable. You can't hardly understand it. It surpasses all of our knowledge to comprehend it. And Paul's, it's almost like Paul's even saying, even me with an inspired pen, I can't even do it justice. I can't even write in a way that can make you really understand just how much God loves you. That's the love that he wants you to taste and to feel and to smell, and to, to embrace. And this is the God that he's talking about. This is the God that wants you in his trophy case as his. So number one thing we need to see clearly is this hope that he's called us to. And number two is that we are his prized possession, his glorious inheritance. And then lastly, the third thing that we need to kind of see more clearly is the incredible power that is available to us. We need to try to understand the power that's available to us, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us, <clears throat> towards us who believe according to the working of His great might 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So first of all, Paul's prayer here is not that believers would be given power, but that we would see it and that we would know the power that he's already put inside of us. When you are saved, that power is given to you by the Holy Spirit. And it is at work in us. And of course it is true that God is, will provide strength and power and does provide strength and power constantly and we need it for sure. But I think what he has in mind right here is to encourage the Ephesian believers to see and to realize, and me and you too, the greatness of God's power in us and what he is doing in us. We cannot do it ourselves. We cannot. We try and try and try to do it ourselves. We cannot make ourselves Christian. We cannot. We cannot make ourselves Christian. God alone makes Christians. For Paul, it is all about the resurrection. I can only imagine again when he's chained to one of these guards and all he's talking about is this dude that ran alive out of a grave. This guy that he that Paul met. Paul met the risen Christ in Acts chapter 9 on that Damascus road. He met the risen Christ. And I may think that the measure of of God's power is best seen in creation or the moon or the stars or all of the the heavens declare the glory of God, of course they do. Uh, or I may, I may think the measure of His power seen in the miraculous healing of a disease or the miraculous um, healing of some busted, broken relationship that you or I may have with somebody. Paul says that the power at work in me and you is the power of the resurrection. It's all about the resurrection. The power of God is the beginning and the end of salvation. The alpha and the omega of salvation. And the basis of all of that power is seen in Christ boldly walking out of that grave. Resurrection is the power to bring life out of death. Creation brings life out of nothing, and that is pretty impressive. But resurrection is bringing life out of death, which may even be greater because death is so nasty and corrosive and destructive and, and is a negative power. And death exists and is at work in the world because we rebelled. And our rebellion brought the wrath and the curse of death on our lives. And it ruins God's creation. It ruins our lives and ultimately everything that we humans touch. But by invoking the power of resurrection... Paul's saying that God is not only able to, to create good stuff out of nothing, He is able to create good things out of corroded, rotten, filthy things. We're born again, the text says, into salvation. We're a new creation, the text says, when we're saved. And this is the very best news for us because the decay and the corrosion of death reaches into all kinds of areas of our life. Many of us struggle, have struggled, are struggling, will struggle with destructive emotions. We're obsessive or we're jealous or we're selfish or, or we're hateful or we're, we're, we're just ugly and nasty 
mean people or we try to control everybody in every situation when maybe we're ravaged with addictions, whatever those addictions may be. It could be drugs or alcohol or pornography or sex or whatever it is, we're ravaged with addictions or we're confused or we're blinded by sin or we're broken or we were raised in a home where our parents beat us. Whatever it is, whatever it may be, God brings life out of death. And that means that He can bring life out of even the deadiest, the deadest, nastiest, most horrible things in our lives, the most horrible parts of our lives, He can bring life out of that. His power, His power, not yours, His power can provide the ability to break selfishness in your life. His power can provide the ability to break any addiction in your life. His power can allow you to have courage when you were a coward. His power uh, uh, can, can give you the strength to, to love Him rather than to love stuff. His power can do anything, break any horrible emotion that you have, any horrible addiction, whatever it is, it's His power. And Paul says, I want you, and Paul is on his knees praying, I want you to taste and to see that power. God's power, a power that can heal you, a power that can heal broken relationships, a power that can heal any brokenness in your life. And I know that I know that I know this, that there are people sitting in here today, right now, that need to, to quit trying to make life work. they got to quit trying, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I made New Year's resolutions. Y'all, it's August. I made New Year's resolutions. And it's time, it's time to just quit all of that stuff and just surrender, which takes humility. It takes a suppression of pride to just say, I surrender to you because I know how much and I'm beginning to get my arms around how much you really love me surrender to that because if you're a believer that power's there it's his power it's surrendering to that I want to finish this today with a three-part three-part question here's the question what or who maybe what is um, your source of hope worth and power what's your source of hope worth and power because you know what you got a source on some sort of a level you got a source for those things something is giving you hope is is your hope in your future in your 401k is it in your money is it in your finances but heaven forbid heaven forbid if your 401k were to be gone would your hope be gone too what about your worth what about your your value where does it come from? Does mine come from who Susan says that I am? Don't get me wrong. I want Susan to think well of me and to feel well of me. But heaven forbid, if she was gone, would my worth be gone? What, what about power? Where's my power found? What's my power coming from? Is my power coming from my position or my job as the CEO of Tesis or the CEO of, of Amazon or the CEO of Coke. Heaven forbid, y'all, if I got fired, would my power be gone too? Y'all, every source of hope, every source of worth, every source of power other than Jesus Christ 
will fail you. It will. At some point, it will fail you. He won't. When you say yes to the salvation that the Lord offers, you make Jesus your hope for the future. When you say yes to the salvation that the Lord offers, you will find your worth in Him, not in, 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 in what somebody else says, and not in any other thing. You will find your worth in Christ. And when you say yes to the salvation that the Lord offers, you will see and you will feel and you will taste and you will embrace the power that He provides you to walk through life with joy. To walk through life with joy. Your identity is found in Him. He will provide the hope. He will provide the, your worth. Stop looking at all these other things to bring you value. And some of those things can bring you happiness, and I'm not saying that they can't. It's like I said a minute ago. I definitely want Susan. Definitely. And I want y'all, and I want the people that I work with to think well of me. But y'all are not my identity. The God that died on the cross for me is my identity. Who am I going to place my hope in? I'm choosing to place my hope in Him. And y'all, I think we make it too difficult. Because it's not, I don't have to understand all the hows and whys all throughout that Scripture. I don't. I know and I believe and I trust that that whole book is a book to lead me into a saving relationship with the one that created me. Because you know what? In that garden, there was a perfect relationship between Adam and Eve and the Lord. What a cataclysmic mess up they made in the garden. I wish they'd had a crystal ball. Like, this is so not theology. They had a crystal ball, and they could look in that thing, and Adam said, Eve, don't you see what that is? She says, Adam, don't you see what that is? And he's like, yeah, but you're naked. And I'm like, what? Don't, don't you see what's going to happen from this whole thing? Well, no, that's, that, they didn't have that, right? That cataclysmic error, but they had free will. And that's what happened. And we all pay the price for that. They did too, but we all pay the price for that. That perfect relationship in the garden is available to us, and it ain't that difficult. I believe that He died on that cross to buy me back and bring me back into that Edenic, that relationship that was in Eden with Him. And we can do that. And we can do it. And there's glorious, like crazy hope in that. And Mercy Me says, we win y'all we win so look if 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 today is a day where that happened to you where that heart change that um that paul speaks about where you begin to understand some of these truths not perfectly you're not fixing to write some big dissertation it's not required but where you begin to understand and accept that he really does love you and you may be struggling like mad that you're not worthy of that love. But you will be a trophy of grace on God's mantle. Think about that. How many different kinds of people in the last thousands of years, different kinds, black, white, blue, green, male, female, you know, axe murderers, whatever. How many different kinds of people? And none of them brought anything to the table. They just woke up in the ambulance to think about last week. And all those different kinds of people, 
you can just imagine it. They're all trophies of grace on God's mantle. And if that is you today, and you've said yes to that offer, fill out that little connection card and stick it in the offering bucket that's coming by. Give it to them at the connections desk, and we've got a prayer team in the back that wants to pray with you. And even if you don't do any of that, but you said yes, the heavens are just exploding with joy. Y'all pray with me. Lord.